Hey, Pitchfork listeners, Goldie here. We're taking a week off for spring break. And while we're lounging by the pool, we're in Seattle, shivering under the rain, uh, we'd love to hear from you, especially if you consider yourself to be a middle-class worker. What do you want to hear us cover on the podcast? What topics are important to you right now? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 731 731- 388-9334, or you can email us pitch at pitchforkeconomics.com, or you can message us on Instagram or Twitter. Just please get in touch with us and let us know what you want to hear more of on the podcast when it comes to middle out economics. In the meanwhile, it's almost tax day, so we thought this would be a good time to re-air our episode with Gabriel Zuckman, an authority on wealth taxes, who spoke to us in 2019 about how to make the rich pay their fair share. So we've done an episode on on the wealth tax, Nick, but this is uh, much broader and more far-reaching. That's right. The U.S. used to have the most progressive tax system in the world. Billionaires pay a lower tax rate than every other income group, only 23% of their income in taxes. The proper way to tax the super wealthy is through a progressive wealth tax. The income tax is not enough. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. You know, for for years now, I've heard that one of the reasons why we shouldn't tax, uh, you know, rich job creators like you and your buddies is that you spend your money so much more efficiently than the government ever could. Right. And in particular, the argument goes, well, you know, if you tax rich people, then they won't give the money away. They won't. It won't trickle down. You're saying they won't create jobs. No, it's not even that. It's just that like that, that we won't donate to charity and that that we're so much better at allocating this capital. Right, because clearly you're so smart to have gained it all. You you must be smart in how you spend it. Exactly. And, you know, um, it is certainly true that there are wealthy people who are deploying assets in effective ways and doing good charitable giving. But the truth is that the amount of giving from very, very rich people relative to our wealth is staggeringly small. So here's a here's an insane stat. The total wealth of the top 400 wealthiest families in America, Forbes 400. Like the people you vacation. Yeah, exactly. It's 2.5 trillion dollars. But the annual charitable giving by the top 400 is only about 10 billion. That's 0.4% of our wealth annually. Now, 10 billion dollars is a lot of money to give away. But it is an astoundingly small amount of the wealth that we actually have. And so that the idea that when rich people don't pay tax at an adequate rate, they somehow just give it all away, it's just, it's just a red herring. It's just absolutely not true. And, you know, using this sort of neoliberal reasoning, we've let the average top individual income tax rate fall insanely over the last 40 years. 
1950, it was 80%, and now it's 37%. Uh, the average top state tax rate was 76%, now it's 47%. Corporate tax rates were used to be 50%, now they're 34%. And the average growth rate of GDP per adult used to be 2.2%, and now... With all these low taxes, it's fallen to 1.3%. Yeah, yeah. But apart from that G GDP number, all of those other numbers are bullshit because nobody's actually paying those top marginal rates. When That's you look right. at the effective rate, it's even lower, not just because of the way we have uh, lower tax rates, but because of the way we have not enforced the taxes we have now. Exactly. And no one knows more about this. Then our esteemed guest uh, and the focus of today's podcast, Gabriel Zuckman, who is a professor of economics at UC Berkeley, focusing on global wealth inequality and tax havens. He's been named one of the 50 most influential thinkers on the planet by Prospect Magazine. We're really lucky to get him on, Nick. He's a, a hot, hot interview uh, guest right now. He and uh, his co-author, Emmanuel Saez, recently published The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay. So we've done an episode on, on the wealth tax, Nick, but this is uh, uh, much broader and more far-reaching because we're because uh, in that book, uh, they go through detail of uh, the entire tax code, uh, how we got into the situation where we are today, and uh, more importantly, what we can do to fix it. That's right. And they expose all the tricks my people use to evade the tax code uh, you, and to... <laughs> <laughs> to not end up paying very much. You trickle-down tricksters. Yes, exactly. And, um, it, you know, in particular, uh, Gabriel and Emmanuel are um, advising a bunch of uh, presidential candidates, including Elizabeth Warren, and her policy positions have evolved substantially as a consequence of their analysis, both of the degree to which rich people avoid paying tax, and the relative economic efficiency of actually taxing them at reasonable rates once again. So should be a fascinating interview. I'm Gabriel Zuckman. I'm a professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley, and I'm the co-author of The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay. Let's start by you just dimensionalizing the problem. Just tell us what problem you're trying to solve. problem we're trying to solve is essentially the rise of income and wealth concentration. It's been dramatic. In 1980, the top 1% highest income earners earned about 10% of total U.S. income. Today, the top 1% earns about 20% of total income. You look at the bottom 50% and it's exactly the opposite. They used to have 20% of US national income. Today they have barely more than 10%. Um, you look at wealth concentration, same thing. There's been an enormous increase in wealth concentration in the US. And look, the tax system plays an important role to regulate inequality. But today, it's failing to uh, curb income and wealth concentration. And it's even worse than that. Now it's adding fuel to the fire. 
Because when you look at the reality of taxation in the U.S. today, when you take into account all taxes at all levels of government, federal, state, and local, what you see, what we describe in the book, that's the first chapter, is that the U.S. tax system now looks like a giant flat tax, where each income group pays the same tax rate of around 28%, except for billionaires, for the 400 richest Americans, who pay only 23% of their income in taxes. So U.S. tax system is a giant flat tax that becomes regressive at the very top end. Yeah, and that, of course, is leading to ever more concentration. (laughs) As the uh, percent of national income that goes to the wealthiest Americans increases, it also reduces revenue because, you know, that same percent is paying a lower rate. Exactly. So you look at what has happened to tax revenue in the U.S. over the last 20, 25 years, and it has actually declined and declined quite significantly by about four percentage points of national income. So in the late 1990s, the total tax take, total amount of tax revenue in the U.S. was 32% of national income. Today, it's about 28%. Um, and you might say a decline of four percentage points, you know, maybe it's not a lot or maybe it's a good thing, but actually it's a lot. And actually, it's a bad thing. It's a lot because the U.S. is, is the only example of a wealthy nation where tax revenue has declined substantially uh, over the medium run. You know, even under Reagan, even under Thatcher in the UK, that had not been the case. And it's a bad thing because it's, it's not that like taxes have declined for the working class or for the middle class. Essentially, this decline comes from a lower capital tax rate, less capital taxation, less taxation on the wealthy. So lower taxation of dividends, a much lower corporate income tax rate and much lower corporate tax revenue, um, much lower estate tax revenue, and so generally speaking, a much less progressive tax system. And given the revenue needs of the country, the the needs in terms of uh, early childhood education, the U.S. is not spending anything today on that, Uh, the needs for higher education, uh, college costs have increased so much, the needs uh, for health insurance, 30 million Americans don't have health insurance today, it's crazy given all these revenue needs to be cutting taxes by four points of national income and to be cutting taxes uh, only for the wealthy. Tell us a little bit about the history of the decline of taxes on the wealthy in the United States, because this has been on a long sort of sordid neoliberal trajectory. At the same time with that, the, the, the rise in taxes on, on working class Americans. Yeah. It's a fascinating history. Uh, the U.S. used to have the most progressive tax system in the world in the middle of the 20th century. If you look at statutory tax rates, high incomes were taxed at 90%. The top marginal income tax rate was or even exceeded 90% in the post-World War II years. Uh, Large estates were taxed at 80% on average from 1930 to 1970. The top estate tax rate exceeded 70%. The corporate tax rate uh, was 50% on average from 1950 to 1980. And it's not only that the tax system looked progressive on paper, 
what we show in the book is that it was progressive in actual facts because sometimes people look at that history of high top marginal income tax rates and they dismiss those rates by saying, oh, nobody paid those and there was a ton of tax evasion and the U.S. never really had an, a, a progressive tax system. But that's not true. What we do in the book is we compute effective tax rates for each group of the population going back to 1913. And what we find is that uh, from the 1930s to the late 1970s, the effective tax rates of the wealthy were really high, uh, in excess of 50, 55, or even 60% uh, under Eisenhower, for instance. At the same time, the tax rates, the effective tax rates for the middle class were much lower than today, were, were you know, around 15, uh, 20%. So what has happened is taxes for the very rich have collapsed taxes for the working class and the middle class have increased. What's the reason why taxes for the working class have increased? That's essentially because of the rise of payroll taxes. Yes. So today, no matter how low your wage is, 15% of your wage goes straight into uh, taxes uh, because of payroll taxes. Um, and uh, it used to be only 5% in the 1950s, now it's 15%. And it's, it's all the more spectacular that during the same period of time, the minimum wage has collapsed. So if you look at minimum wage workers, uh, if you were employed full-time at the minimum wage in the 1950s, you earned about half of the average income in the economy and you paid 5% in payroll taxes. Today, if you are employed full-time at the minimum wage, uh, you earn the equivalent of only 20% of the average income in the U.S., and you pay much more taxes. You pay 15% uh, in taxes on that, on that minimum wage salary. So that's the main reason why, why taxes have increased for the working class. Yeah, it's, just, it's absolutely astonishing. But, but on the bright side, Nick, that means you have more money to create jobs. <laughs> exactly. Right? Because I remember my Econ 101 textbook, and they tell me that you know, you mm. want low taxes, particularly on the wealthy, the job creators yeah. like Nick, so that they can invest in creating good-paying jobs for people like me. Yeah, exactly. Has it worked out that way? No. Have we seen that that burst in economic growth that orthodox economic theory uh, tells us would be there? Why not? I mean, that theory has some consistency with it, you know, in it. Like, like any ideology, it has some plausibility. So this idea that you tax the wealthy less and they will work more, they will invest more, they will innovate more, they will create jobs, and they will, this will trickle down to the rest of the population. Um, it has some plausibility until you look at the data. So yeah. what we can do now is... 40 years after the beginning of this process of, of tax cuts for the very rich, we can look at what has happened. So let's look at what has happened to, first of all, economic growth, overall economic growth. From 1950 to 1980, when the U.S. tax system was very progressive, GDP per adult grew at 2.2% a year on average. Now look at the latest 30 years. 1950 to 1980 is 30 years. Let's look now at 1990 to 2020, another 30 years period of time. The tax system was much less progressive. Taxes on the rich have been slashed. GDP per adult has grown at 1.3% per year right. on average, much less than from the 1950s, 1980. Second, let's go beyond just overall economic growth. Let's look at 
growth for the various income groups. Let's look at the, at, at the working class, the bottom 50% of the income distribution. The whole trickle-down experiment was predicated on the notion that eventually it would be good for workers, it would boost their wages, it would boost their income. The average income for the bottom 50% in 1980 was $18,000 per adult adjusted for inflation. The average income for the bottom 50% today is $18,500 per adult. So there's essentially been zero growth for half of the population, for the bottom 50% of the income distribution. The working class has been excluded from economic growth. And that's, it's very important to realize that $18,500 per adult, that's the average income today for half of the U.S. population. It's extremely low, and it has not increased at all since 1980. And I think now that's evidence that trickle-down uh, is, is not working as it was supposed to. You know, our, of course, our podcast is devoted to exposing the lies, which are neoliberalism and trickle-down economics. But as you talked about the decline of GDP growth rate from 2.2% per adult when taxes were high, right. both personal and corporate taxes were high. Well, taxes to, were high on, on people like you, yeah. lower on people like me. That's Nick. right. Let's keep and, that straight. And, but you also point out in the book that um, it's not just that we've lowered, dramatically lowered uh, tax rates on corporations and the wealthy. We don't enforce the taxes we have. Explain what a, what a big bite that takes out and, and how it's done. Yeah. Since the 1980s, you've had a surge in uh, the tax avoidance industry. So the New Deal era tax system worked well, paid very progressive uh, taxes, because it was accompanied by an effort on the part of successive administrations to reduce tax avoidance to a minimum, to reduce tax evasion uh, to a minimum. So, for instance, Franklin Roosevelt, he spent his time going uh, on the radio, uh, shaming tax dodgers, explaining how important it was to pay taxes, that this was a price to pay for a civilized society, creating the social norms that make progressive taxation work. And you can contrast that with um, Reagan, when he takes office in 1981, uh, he gives this famous speech on how government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. And what you see in the data is that immediately after that, the tax avoidance industry booms. It starts expanding, creating new tax dodges uh, that are advertised in newspapers, you know, like toothpaste. And you see the tax sheltering industry uh, grow enormously. You see tax avoidance uh, uh, rise a lot. Um, this is important because it illustrates one of the key ideas of, of the book, which is that tax avoidance, tax evasion, even tax competition, these are not laws of nature. These are policy choices. Sometimes governments choose to encourage them, and sometimes governments choose to, to fight tax avoidance and tax evasion by, by creating the social norms, by regulating uh, the financial industry, the legal industry, the, 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 the consultants, the accountants that sell tax avoidance services. That's important because it shows that it's possible 
to reconnect with the tradition of tax progressivity uh, that was so powerful in the U.S. from the 1930s to 1970s. There's, there's nothing inherent in, in globalization or in modern technology that makes it impossible to, to tax the wealthy uh, today. That's a choice uh, that, that essentially is ours to make. And this social norm has gotten even worse, you point out. In the book, you quote uh, Trump in a debate actually bragging about paying no taxes, saying it's because I'm smart. That makes me smart. Which, that makes me smart. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd like to jump in. A big part of our podcast, Gabriel, is devoted to exposing the fact that economics, as it is experienced by most citizens, is mostly a narrative that defines who gets what and why. It's a story we tell ourselves that instantiates our social and moral preferences about status, privileges, and power. And the neoliberal narrative that has perfectly selfish homo economicus at the center of it teaches people what Trump says, that the more selfish we are, the more prosperous we become that therefore selfishness is righteous, and that the richer job creators and the more money they have, the more jobs they'll create. And I'd love for you to try to connect, if you can, traditional orthodox economic theory to some of these narratives and how they reshaped our politics and our policy over the last 30 or 40 years. I agree with you that orthodox economic theory has played, unfortunately, an important role in the decline in tax progressivity, in, in justifying it, and in the rise of inequality. So one thing that's striking, for instance, is economists have been emphasizing uh, this idea that taxing capital is, is a very bad thing and that kills capital accumulation and that eventually it, it reduces wages for workers. And it is so costly that ideally we'd like to have zero capital taxation, according to yeah. the economies, according to these models. And, and, and it, it turns out that this, this vision, which might seem extreme, in fact, is very influential. It's influential way beyond economics. For sure. Sometimes when, when I talk about you know, with tax lawyers or with policymakers in D.C., they tell me, very frankly, oh, we thought that economists had demonstrated, had proven that capital should not be taxed, that the optimal tax rate is 0%. And therefore, the fact that, that, that the corporate tax rate is being cut, you know, was cut from 35% to 21% last year, is going in the right direction. The fact that the estate tax is dying, that's something that's going in the right direction. The fact that we are taxing dividends much less than wages, it's going in the right direction. All of that is good. And the problem <laughs> is that Okay, the, the, the models. <laughs> yeah, the problem is that it's, it's it's always the same problem. Is that you know it might make sense in a certain model of the world where you have perfectly rational agents who are very sensitive to differences uh, between the future consumption and today's consumption. And so if, if future consumption is a bit more expensive than, than current consumption, they're, they're going to save less and consume much more today. I mean, you can write models like that where it's not a good idea to tax capital. But then you look at the data, and the data 
shows that when capital was highly taxed in the U.S., and it was highly taxed in the 50s, in the 60s, with 50% corporate tax and so on, that's also the period of time when investment yes. was not low, but was the highest right. on record. And, and vice versa, since capital taxation has declined, in particular because of the influence of economists uh, in the 1980s, 1990s, saving rates and investment rates have declined. And so the, the standard model that economists, some economists still like, is just not the right model. It's not, it doesn't explain reality. It's just wrong. And I think a growing, to be fair, you know, too many economists and, and too many people in, in, in policy circles still hold on to that model, but a growing number of people recognize that. And they realize, for instance, that what drives capital accumulation is not, you know, low taxes, is more like the many regulations that influence uh, saving behavior. That's a big lesson from uh, behavioral economics, for instance. Uh, just to give one example, if you think about retirement saving, yeah. one policy to boost retirement saving is to create tax-free retirement accounts. And uh, many studies show that when you do that, what people do is they shift their assets from taxable accounts to tax-free accounts without increasing their saving, their overall saving rate right. in any measurable way. Another policy to boost retirement saving is um, to dramatically enroll workers in uh, pension plans uh, or in individual retirement accounts, default options or nudges. And many articles show that this has a big effect on the saving rate, default option nudges, automatic enrollment, increase pension saving for retirement, and increase the overall saving rate. What this shows is people respond much less to tax incentives than what the naive, fully rational model suggests. And what matters much more is regulation, nudges, default options. But let me just add a point of clarification, because you missed by far the best way to get people to save, which is to pay them enough to live in dignity now and also save, <laughs> which is what has been yes. missing from right. our you, economy. You, right? can't, you can't save sure. for retirement yeah, yeah. when you're making $18,000 a, a year and paying 15.3% right, <laughs> right. right off the top yeah. in payroll taxes. And, yeah, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. That's why I stress the stagnation of, of working class income. You know, it's impossible to save on such a low income. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, another factor is also the deregulation of the financial industry. When you have a big industry that, that sells consumer credit or payday loans that's not regulated, you know, that's going to make it easier for people to, to borrow, to go into debt, and, and to save less. So, you know, there are many factors. And the point, however, is that it's not tax incentives that matter. And so the idea that by detaxing capital, you're going to boost capital accumulation and growth and wages just has no uh, substance. And it's, no, you know, it's, it's just wrong. So one of the things I loved about the book is that, well, it starts very depressing in laying out the situation now and how we got there. You actually sound really optimistic that the solutions are doable. So uh, it's our favorite, the benevolent dictator question. What would you do to fix this problem? 
There are lots of solutions. There's no magic bullets, uh, but uh, there is a combination of changes that are doable and that, that can make a real difference. In my view, uh, it all starts with fixing the corporate tax. The corporate tax might seem like something that's boring, not very important. Actually, it's very important because if there's no corporate tax, you cannot have a progressive income tax. If, there's, if the corporate tax rate is 0%, then the rich incorporate, they earn income through their companies, and they avoid taxes this way. And you know, they don't pay themselves dividends, they, they reinvest all their income, and the income tax you know, is just dead and it has morphed into a mere consumption tax. So if you want to safeguard progressive income taxation, it starts with fixing the corporate tax. Fixing the corporate tax is possible right now we are allowing corporations to book profits in Bermuda, in the Cayman Islands, in Ireland, where profits are taxed at a very low rate. It would be very easy to say, look, if you book earnings abroad and these earnings are taxed at a low rate, the U.S. is going to collect the missing tax. You know, if you're taxed at 2% in Ireland and the corporate tax rate is 30% in the U.S., uh, we, the United States, are going to tax your Irish income at the rate of 28%. So as to establish, to apply a 30% country-by-country minimum tax rate. So you fix the corporate tax like that, then you can make, a more, you know, you can make the income tax more progressive, you know, higher top margin income tax rate. But what's important to understand is that even that would not be enough, especially uh, when it comes to taxing the very wealthy. So remember, one of the problems today is that billionaires pay a lower tax rate than every other income group, only 23% of their income in taxes. And the reason for that is that when you are very wealthy, you can own a ton of wealth while having a little taxable income, while reporting little income. The, the, you know, one striking example is Warren Buffett. He is worth about $80 billion, according to Forbes magazine, but his taxable income is only something like 10 or $20 million. The reason for that is he's the main shareholder of Berkshire Hathaway. He instructs the company not to pay dividends, and so he doesn't receive dividends. The only taxable income he has is when he sells a few shares, realizes a bit of capital gains. And you see the problem. You see that even if you increase the tax rate on capital gains, even to 100%, let's say, in the case of Warren Buffett, he would pay $20 million in taxes. This would still be essentially nothing for him. You know, 0% of his wealth or 0% of his true economic income. That's why for billionaires, you need a wealth tax. The proper way to tax the super wealthy is through a progressive wealth tax. The income tax is not enough. And so we make proposals in the book and the idea of, of wealth taxation, especially uh, uh, high wealth tax rates on billionaires, now is, is, is becoming mainstream. You have both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who have proposals to, to have wealth taxes, uh, especially on, on billionaires. That could make a big difference. So for instance, even a 3% tax rate on wealth above $1 billion would double the effective tax rate on the top 400 richest Americans. Today, it's 23%. With a 3% wealth tax, it would become 46%. So what we're saying in the book is, look, there is this long tradition of tax progressivity in the U.S. 
it's possible to reconnect with that tradition, but it needs to be modernized. It needs to be adapted to the reality of the 21st century. That means fixing the way we tax multinational companies, fighting tax havens, and creating a new tool, a progressive wealth tax on the super wealthy. You, yeah. you advocate for putting more into enforcement. I think in the book you said the the IRS brings a knife to a gunfight. How do we do a better job uh, on enforcement? First of all, by increasing the IRS budget, which has declined enormously over the last 10 years. That's, that's easy. That's an investment that would have a, a, a very high return. You put more money and you, you increase the audit rate <laughs> at yeah. the top and you get much, much more money. Okay, so that's probably the, the highest rate of return on public investment uh, at that stage. Um, you look at the evolution of audit rates for, for very high income earners, they have collapsed over the last 10 years, essentially divided by a factor of three. People with AGI, with, with, with gross income above $10 million, the audit rate used to be above 30%. Only, you know, only five, ten years ago, and today it's, it's less than, than 10%. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is um, to uh, uh, create what we call, you know, a public protection bureau. So the idea is to create an agency that would regulate the tax dodging industry. Because the main thing I've learned by studying tax evasion over the years is that tax evasion is not a psychological thing. It's not like people wake up in the morning and, and, and say, oh, look, you know, taxation is theft and I'm going to evade taxes. The way it works is, um, for the very rich is that it's essentially driven by um, the industry, what you could call the supply side of the, of, of the market for tax evasion. So this whole you know, industry of uh, accountants and lawyers and bankers that, that sell uh, tax avoidance and tax evasion services. And so you need an agency to regulate that industry, to make sure that when any uh, new tax dodge is invented, you know, uh, whether it is for, for individuals or for corporations, that this agency is made aware of, of that and any uh, product that violates the economic substance doctrine should be outlawed. That's important. Economic substance means that any, you know, there's a, that's a, a clause in, in U.S. law and that also exists in other countries that says that any transaction that has the sole purpose of avoiding taxes is illegal. And there are lots of such transactions today. When you look at, for instance, Google Alphabet, they created shell companies in Bermuda, sold their own intellectual property to their Bermuda subsidiary, and there's nothing of substance that's happening in Bermuda. The reason why they did that is just to avoid, uh, to avoid taxes. And so it would be relatively easy uh, for U.S. authorities to say that's tax evasion, that's illegal, but you need an agency that monitors all of this closely, and you need resources, and you need the political will to enforce uh, the economic substance doctrine. Yeah, and, and ideally imprison the people who do that. <laughs> Yeah, you can't find them. You can't you find the company people. or the people. Yeah, it's like, oh well, if I get caught, I'll have to pay some no. of the money back. Yeah, and in the end, we're talking about we're talking about real money here. I know you went into the book. You you were looking at optimal tax rates. What is the rate that would raise the most money? And and I think you came up with sixty percent on average for the top one percent. That raises, if I remember correctly, you said. 
$750 billion a year in additional taxes? Correct. So the idea is there's no optimal tax rate in the sense that it's not for economists or anybody to decide what the tax rate should be. You know, it's for the people to decide through democratic deliberation and, and the vote. But there is a tax rate that maximizes revenue collection. And what we do in the book is we compute what that, might, that tax rate might be for the top 1%, and, and what we find is that it's around 60%. That's, that means if the, the top 1% was taxed at 60% on average, that's what would maximize tax collection from the top 1%. It's not 100%, obviously, because if you tax the, you know, people a lot at some point, you know, they start working maybe a bit less, or you have some behavioral responses. So the ultimate tax rate is not, is not you know, the revenue maximizing tax rate is not 100%, but 60% average tax rate, which would correspond to a 75% Top marginal income tax rate, you know, think of the, the marginal tax rate applying to, to more than $500,000 in income. And if, you did, if the U.S. did that, yes, it could collect four extra points of national income in tax revenue each year. So essentially erasing the decline in the tax-to-GDP ratio uh, that we've seen uh, since the late 1990s. Remember, in the late 1990s, Tax-to-GDP ratio was 32%, today it's 28%. Just by taxing the 1% more, you can uh, get four points of extra revenue. And this is something that you know, some people might say, well, that, that will never happen, it has, it's impossible. Well, except that it has happened in the past. Now, again, the effective tax rates were not far from that uh, in the 50s and the 60s. Not by coincidence, the economic growth rates in the country were the highest more or less in its history. And the political cohesion was also <laughs> extremely high. Yeah, everybody was too. chipping in. Exactly. Uh, you know, it was all for one and one for all. Yeah. And it's not so surprising because I think the big lesson from economic history is that what makes countries prosperous is not low taxes on the super rich. It's not the glorification of, of billionaires. It's not that. It's investments in education for all, health care for all, investment in public infrastructure, in children, in early education. That's what makes countries and communities prosperous. And it turns out that these things, for the most part, they require tax revenue because most of these things are better done by the government uh, than the private sector. Of course, we can have a debate on exactly you know, who should do what, but by and large, the big lesson from the, the economic success stories of the 20th century is that education, health, infrastructure, early education is key for development and is better done for the most part by, by the government. Absolutely. We always have to ask this. Why do you do what you do? I do this because I think inequality is indeed the defining challenge of our time. And I look at history and I see that there are lots of policies that, that affect inequality. Of course, you know, antitrust, financial regulation, uh, access to higher education, all of that matters a lot. But taxation and progressive taxation in particular probably is the most important one in the sense that historically 
the big changes in income and wealth concentration have been linked to changes uh, in, in progressive taxation. And so if, if we care about inequality, if we take seriously this idea that it's one of the defining challenges of our time, then naturally, you know, you need to think about uh, how to make progressive taxation work in the 21st century. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, and thank you for your work. Uh, thank you so and much. for doing the book and for being an influence on the policies and narratives that are emerging in this presidential cycle. I, I will tell you, it's not making my friends happy, but uh, but it has been, I think it's been super constructive and uh, It's making useful. my friends happy. <laughs> and Nick, there's, there's more of us than there are of you. It's true. It's All true. Right. Thank you so much, Gabriel. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks for having me. Okay, we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, Goldie, did that conversation make you happy? Oh, absolutely, because, uh, you know, you're going to get yours someday, Nick. You know, someday. You, can, you can talk about someday. the pitchforks all I'm, you want. I'm moving to Bermuda. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> well, this is, this is the thing. You can do that, yeah. according to Gabriel. And if we redo our tax code right, yeah. it won't do you a lick of good. Yeah, I, it's astonishing that you should why, – why wouldn't we just do that? Just right. Say, this idea that, yeah. that if, okay, uh, uh, yeah. you pay 2% in Bermuda and the tax rate is, is – 30% here, we'll just charge you the other right. 28%. I want to tell you, uh, you, I'm sure you don't do your own taxes, right? I, I do not. You do not do your own taxes. Yeah. Uh, not only do I pay taxes, unlike rich people like yeah. you, but I actually do my own taxes. Yeah. And because I'm a homeowner and I get that unfair home mortgage yeah. interest deduction, I'm one of the 25% of Americans who actually itemize. And yeah. one of the deductions I get is... I get to deduct some of my local taxes from my income. Yeah. Right? So when I pay tax in Washington state, that comes off what I have to pay the federal government. Right. Why shouldn't it be the same way if you pay a tax, your 2% tax in Bermuda or Ireland or whatever? Okay, that's fine. We'll deduct that. Yeah. But the rest of it, you're going to pay anyway, yeah, yeah. regardless of yeah. uh, where you... For sure. And I'm very sympathetic to the idea that if you do business in Ireland, right. you should pay taxes to in Ireland uh, at their rate Apple, on the business Apple that you do. Apple should pay <laughs> Irish corporate income tax on every single Dollar iPhone it sells, sells in, in Ireland. Ireland. <laughs> but if you sell an iPhone in the United States of America, right. you should pay taxes right. on all of that. Uh, same income. Sa right. Yeah. Same thing with uh, Google yeah. and Facebook right. Absolutely. And, and all the other intellectual yeah. property we've parked in. That's right. In, in tax havens. Yeah. And well, I mean, I thought it was a fascinating conversation. He's an amazingly articulate guy. And, you know, I think it really is an, uh, obviously an incredibly important issue in the way in which they have exposed, in particular, the ways in which the super rich right. both earn money, but also shelter it. But both legally and illegally from tax, I think, is really, really constructive. And just helping people to understand that when Jeff Bezos's wealth goes from $80 billion to $100 billion in a year, that, you know, that's income. <laughs> you know, like that is, you know, that something good has happened to him and that there should be some kind of way to tax that. And if he pays himself, I think, $80,000 a year, 
you know, that's that's not a true representation right. of what's actually going on there. And we have to we have to find ways to account for that. So anyway. Yeah, I think and, and there's something else we actually didn't get to in our conversation uh, that he mentions in the book, which speaks to a topic we've talked about, but have struggled with, which is trade, what to do about trade. Um, these proposals he has on uh, corporate taxation internationally, where in the book they propose that there should be, you know, whatever the numbers may be, a 25, an yeah. international agreement on a 25 percent uh, minimum corporate tax rate to, uh, to get rid of this, you know, shopping for lower tax rates. How do you get that? Well, he proposes it should be integrated into all of our future trade agreements. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's you, a you obvious wanna, and brilliant idea. You want to be in on the trade agreement? You have, you have to, to have a minimum 25% right. corporate tax rate. Right, right. Done deal. Yeah. Else you're not in the trade zone. Exactly. And then you instantly and, get rid of all this right. shenanigans. And let's be clear what these companies are really getting with these big corporations like Apple and Google yeah. and Facebook and everybody. Disney, what they are getting out of these trade deals is uh, international protections for their intellectual property. Right. So they want these trade deals yeah. because Disney wants to make its money off the mouse yeah. all over the world. Right. And that's just got to be a precondition. You're yeah. going to pay your taxes yeah. all over the world, too. It's a super smart idea. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.